The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. The topic again is guns and children. There's a number of issues I'd like to discuss. So hopefully we'll get to most of them. If we don't get to all of them, you are invited back again to there's a I'm giving same class again next week for attorneys on next Thursday. Different location. If you're interested, let me know. And I'm also giving this class at Shavuos um, at the Marlin Minion at 1.45 a.m., I believe, um, with a followed by a barbecue. You're giving it some time because it's so good. You just do it to get right. Yeah, I, yeah I'm just lazy. So I'm the same class most of And I'm giving it in Hebrew at uh, 3 a.m. at Rabbi Kobian's show. So if you, want, if you want to hear it in Hebrew. Okay, so, um, so the first thing to begin with, um, is again, we're going to focus mostly on the halachic aspects, the Jewish aspects. Um, not, I don't, I can't speak to the law per se. I'm not an attorney. Um, so it's mostly we focus about the halachic, halachic aspects of guns in the shul. See it, see it. I'm asking you to scoot over. Everyone could just scoot down a drop and make some room here. More room. Okay, so the uh, so the again the first part we're gonna discuss, the first aspect very important is the question of lost my pen somewhere here. Is the question for you. No, no, I have so the the first question is obvious the obvious part, this is a basic question, nothing to do with the shul. Specifically in a public place such as a shul, um, you need to be aware obviously there's safety concerns. There's children, there's adults, there's rabbis. Many times people uh, want to kill the rabbi, you have to be careful. Um, so the, the first, the obvious issue here, it's, it's obviously an issue of Pikuach Nefesh. Most, almost everything we want to talk about, as we know in Jewish law, is overridden by the concept of Pikuach Nefesh, which is saving a life. So all halacha is out the window whenever it comes to, in Jewish law, um, everything goes out the window when it comes to, you can violate any law in the Torah to save a life, except the big three. So almost everything we're going to talk about are cases where, and we're going to try to figure out what's considered where there's a real threat to a life. But in essence, in principle, this is known as it's a biblical law. There's a verse in Leviticus which states, which says, you have to live by the commandments. That means it's understood. The Talmud extrapolates from that. that any commandment in the Torah which in any which way endangers a person's life, any one of the 613 mitzvot in the Torah which endangers a Jew's life, you don't have to, you're exempt from doing that mitzvah because you shall live by the mitzvah and not die by it. So therefore when it comes to Shabbat or when it comes to any of the other laws we're going to talk about where it's a questionable, can you use a gun on Shabbat? When it comes to saving a life, there's no, it's not applicable. It's out the window. There are only three laws, three exceptions to that rule which are not relevant to this class, um, which are murder, well, this is not murder, this is self-defense obviously here, um, but, uh, you know, it's meaning killing an innocent person. You can't do 
even to save your own life, an innocent person, killing um, adultery and other sexual uh, sexual violations, certain sexual violations um, cannot be done to save your own life. So that means if someone puts a gun to you and says, sleep with this married woman or I'm going to shoot you, you have to give up your life before um, having relations with her. Number three is uh, idolatry. It's the only three exceptions. I mean, someone puts a gun to your head, says, worship this pagan god. Um, then uh, also, you you cannot do that. You have to sacrifice your life before doing it. Okay? Those are three exceptions, but generally speaking... I said it's I said clap away. So, uh, so now, the... the Again, that's important to note. So that's number one, as we've stressed many times. But there's another aspect, which is you cannot, a person cannot, there's a biblical prohibition of endangering your own safety and others. Okay, which is, again, we, I think we discussed it here in the past. There's a verse in the Torah, also a biblical commandment, which states that one shall, you want to pass the food down? This way. All the food. Everyone pass the food down this way. Um, so there's a biblical pro, uh, commandment which is derived from a verse that says when you're building a home, um, you have to place anything that's over a certain height, you have to place a parapet around that uh, the roof or the porch, whatever it may be, the stoop. And it's understood from that, my mind is broadened that, that that's telling you safety law, which is telling you that any time you cannot endanger, you cannot have something in your home or anywhere which will endanger other people. Let's say you have uh, whatever it may be. That, that's the, the classical case is this case of, of creating a wall around a high place to make sure no one falls off. Okay? Um, and as I said, my man broadens that law and he says any safety hazard, any occupational hazard, for example, if you're on a pit bull um, and it's not contained, it's not trained or it's not on a leash, that would also be problematic. Okay? Um, according to Jewish law. So the same, same would apply for, with a gun. Okay, that means um, if you own a gun, I'm not saying you can't own a gun, you can own a gun for obviously self-defense purposes, but you need to make sure that you practice all safety protocols, and especially if you're going to bring that gun into a synagogue or any public place for that matter, in a shul, you need to make sure that um, you're trained. Obviously, besides having a license, it's illegal not to, to have a gun without a license, but besides, license just allows you to carry. That's what the license is about. That's what the license is just about carrying, but... You need to still understand that there's much more to safety to safety for the gun. Just because you know how to carry doesn't mean you can shoot the gun in a public place. Unless, so for example, I have a license to carry, but I don't take my gun to show because I haven't gone to the range in two years, and I'm probably not such, doesn't have such good aim. And if I shoot the gun in the show, I probably will end up killing someone else, um, and not the, necessarily the, the perpetrator. Okay, so therefore I don't carry the show. So that's a very important aspect, which is this concept of safety. I'm just putting that out there before. Um, and, and as we discussed many times here, there's a concept in Jewish law that danger is even stricter than prohibitions. I mean, we view danger, anytime there's, a, there's an aspect of danger to life, um, we're more strict about that than, than a regular prohibition. Like I wrote, like I put here on the front, guns must be in a secure location. That means if you're going to have your gun in shul, you can't just put it in your talus bag where some kid might have access to it. Keeping your, you know, you have to either keep it, and we'll talk about that, on yourself, which might be a problem on Shabbat, or in a safe. Just like there's, a, when you go to a hotel room, they have a safe or a vault, a gun safe for your things. So on a shul, 
um, at least when it's not being used, it should be in that safe. Okay, with access to only people who keep kept in a locked room in the rabbi's office where no children will have access to. That's a very important aspect, just, just to begin with as a way of introduction. Okay, that's number one. Now the, the next key issue here, you turn the page, page two here, which is interestingly enough, there's a, no one, a little known prohibition, which is the Talmud, as we're going to see, derives that you're not allowed to bring weapons into a synagogue. Prohibition. Um, it's not exactly, it's not explicit in the Torah, but they derive it from, there's a famous story in coming up in Numbers, the Parsha Pinchas. Pinchas is actually the end of Parsha Bala. The story of Pinchas, Pinchas was the zealot, known as the zealot. He, uh, we're not getting into the details of the story, but basically he was sitting and studying um, in the Beit Midrash. He was the grandson, he was a grandson, he was from the tribe of Levi grandson of Aaron, I believe, of the Kohen, and uh, there was a, a lot of nasty stuff going on outside. Because the, even the heads of tribes, they were um, intermarrying at the time, they were, they were having relations with the Moabites and the uh, other um, non-Jewish women. He went ahead, and as a zealot, he went ahead and it says in the Torah languages, he picked up his spear and went and stabbed this couple in the middle of their act, right in the middle of their act. Don't try that at home or at your synagogue, okay? So without getting into the details of the story, not so relevant, but the Talmud says, you see from here, that the fact that he uses the language, he had to stand up to get his weapon, we derive from that that you cannot bring a weapon into a synagogue. That's what the Talmud says. You're not supposed to bring a, a uh, uh, in that case it was a spear, but it's applied really to any weapon. There's a prohibition of bringing a weapon in synagogue. Now what's the reason for that? Why would people, what's the problem? Um, so the Talmud says, and the Shulchan Aruch brings this down, and the Medrash quotes it, that the purpose of a synagogue, why do we go to synagogue? We pray. What's the purpose of prayer? One of the key purposes for a long life. We're praying uh, God should grant us life. Weapons have the opposite effect. Weapons shorten life. So it says to that, that, that sensitivity, you don't want to bring something that shortens life into a synagogue where the purpose is, and the purpose of prayer is to lengthen life. That's what the measure says, yes. So where did uh, Pincus kill Zom, uh, Zimri and Cosby? Where, where, where it says they were, in a, they were having, a, they were cohabitating in a tent, um, in a tent. He walked into the tent, and he stabbed them both. Okay, we're not, it's, since we're eating, we're not going to get into the graphic details of where he stabbed them, etc. But that's, uh, that's a whole different story. Was Did he have a right to do it? Should he have done what he did? But in either case, we see, I mean, the Torah says he was rewarded for what he did. But in either case, we see this concept. The Talmud derives a side concept that's relevant to us, which is that you're not supposed to have a weapon in, in a synagogue. Okay? Um, now, again, I want to make it clear. If there's a question of saving a life, there's no question that it would override this law. So this, this whole issue here that we're going to discuss now for the next few minutes is relevant only if, let's say there's no security issue in the synagogue. Let's say it's during the week or you know, it's not during services and you're, and you're in the synagogue where you're carrying a weapon. I'm talking about in the sanctuary, not in the rest of the synagogue. In the sanctuary itself. So that's where this question would be applicable. If you're, you have the weapon, again, for security purposes and there's a true threat and you need to carry the weapon because of things that are going on, so then that's something else, as we're going to see. That's, of course, that's pikov nefesh, that's 
you're allowed to do that, as we said before. Um, saving of a life overrides all prohibitions. Surely this prohibition of bringing the weapon in. So this whole question of bringing a weapon in is relevant, really, when there's no threat, current threat, um, to, to life. So you're just carrying the shul, you're not really trained, you just happen to carry wherever you go, and you're, wa- and you're in the synagogue. So that's the question here. Yes. So the shul, the synagogue is a community. So is the decision as to when they can carry the weapon into the synagogue, is that a communal decision or is it in the... So, so we're going to discuss when when you're allowed to carry, but right. again, if it's, there's two, there's two scenarios, I want to make it clear because this is very important. Um, there's a scenario where, let's say, it's deemed there is a threat. Let's say there's, uh, this, the, the, the uh, HPD called and said, we have specific uh, threat to your synagogues in Maryland. Okay? So therefore, in that case, of course, there's no question you can bring the weapon into the synagogue. We're not discussing that. Case. That's a threat. Again, when there's a danger to human life, of course you can bring it in. You have to define what a danger is. But here we're talking about if there's no, assuming there's a case where there's no danger, there's no threat, meaning there's security guards outside, there's lockdown, there's a fence, there's really no threat within the synagogue at this point. That's the question that we're discussing at this point. This so in, it's similar this to end. what happened in Pittsburgh, where they had no idea that there was a threat. No, well, well in Pittsburgh, well, yes, they might have, not have known, but we're going to discuss that. We have to okay. define what a threat is. That's a very okay. good question. Okay. We have to define a threat. Okay. I'm right, and I'm that right. Well, Already fixed my plate. Yeah, here's the plate. Um, say it again. Sorry, I missed you. I missed you. It comes down to timeliness of the threat. Well, not timeliness. Meaning we have to define a threat. Because as we'll get to soon, I mean, just because two, you know, in the last 50 years, two synagogues were attacked in the United States. So does that make it that there's a real danger to life going to synagogue? I mean, you have more of a chance driving on the 610 and dying than going to synagogue. And, Getting hurt, right? So the question is, how do we define threats? We'll get to that. You have an well, answer, right? Someone intentionally trying to harm you. True. I mean, six ten. I've had people intentionally try to harm you. Well, you shouldn't talk to yourself on your drive. That's true. How you doing? Good. Okay. So. Um, Again, the question, uh, so, so again, we're discussing in a non-dangerous situation where there's no potential, where there's nothing that's threatening human life at this juncture. Can one bring a, 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 um, a weapon into a shul? Again, so we're saying based on this concept of um, you don't do things, weapons, since weapons foreshorten life, we don't want to do things that, that, that uh, um, you don't want to bring into a synagogue where the purpose is to lengthen life. Um, and by the Does way, this that also apply to a Gentile as well? Because we yeah. one one might assume that the life we'd be shortening would be a non-Jew. No, no, again, there's no threat. We, we bring it in because they happen to be carrying that day. You know, it's it's like you're coming for the kiddush. There's no whatever the case is during the week. There's no no one around beside you. You're studying with the rabbi. So there's no potential threat at that point. That's what we're discussing this point. Okay. Um, now, and we're not going to. By the way, there are other cases. Interestingly enough, this is applied in other cases. Allah also says when you when you when you eat at your table, there's also an issue of having a knife. In those days, a knife on the table when you finish eating, because you should when you say berchat amazon when you when you say grace after meal, you're supposed to cover the knife for a similar reason because it says the every table where you eat kosher food is like the altar. It's like you're sacrificing. To, it's like you're offering food to Hashem. And therefore, an altar, again, the purpose of the altar is to lengthen life. Therefore, you cover the knife. Um, but that's, a, that's another application. 
some say that uh, talk about that. Uh, Baal Shem Tov says you, when you have a mezuzah case, you shouldn't use metal in your mezuzah case for the same reason. Since metal fashions weapons, and the purpose of a mezuzah, the Torah says, to lengthen your life, um, therefore don't use a metal case. But so there's other applications, not for now. So let's continue here. So if you look at number four, so some say Chavetz Chaim who wrote a commentary on, on Shulchan Aruch says that covering the weapon is sufficient. If you cover the weapon, just like we're saying if you cover the knife during the Birchad Mazon, that's sufficient. So technically if you only, if you have a handgun and it's concealed, according to him and many others, that's sufficient. Um, so you cover the weapon, that would technically be sufficient. Now if you have a rifle, if you're coming in with an, with an M16 or a shotgun into the shul, it's going to be a little harder to, to cover it. Okay, um, so so obviously in, th- in those cases it's going to be harder. But technically, according to the Mishnah Brewer, it's sufficient to cover the weapon. Um, it goes on to say, so if you look at number five, this is a response written by Rabbi Lezer Waldenberg. Uh, contemporary times, he died around 15 years ago. He's a rabbi in Israel, Sharon Tzedek. So he, um, in discussing, he was asked by soldiers about bringing weapons into shul. Again, soldiers off duty, they have to carry the weapon in the IDF at all times. So what happens? They go into a shul. They, he asked, they were asked, he asked them this question. So he said, "Listen, in, again, as we're saying, times of real danger um, during wartime, of course you carry your gun into the sanctuary. There's no question." He says. Then he makes a list of hierarchy of how you should treat the weapon. He says, "Otherwise, if it's not a time of danger, if there's no extra bother, you should remove your gun before entering and place it either in a safe or have someone else watch it outside the sanctuary." Obviously, again. Um, you have to know what the protocols of the IDF are. You're allowed to if it's take covered, your weapon. What's the point of doing that? Well, they, again, they had long weapons. <coughs> they had, he, he doesn't seem to agree that covering is sufficient, this opinion. But in either case, we're talking about a, a soldier who has a, a rifle. Okay. So it's going to be a little hard to cover it unless you're very tall. Right, you can't put it down your pants. Two ropes cover it up pretty nice. Ah, so he says, that's what he says. He says, if that's not, pa- he says, he says in number D, he says what he says. He says, if you cannot remove the bullet, well, let's do C first. C says, he say, he says a very interesting point. He says, if it's not possible, remove the cartridge or bullets from the gun and keep your bullets in your pocket because, again, the prohibition is on bringing in a weapon. What he says is, once you remove the cartridge, it's no longer able to shoot. That's not defined as a weapon. It is, you know, it's because at that point, it can't do its job. Okay, so he says, if you separate the cartridge or the bullets, that would also be uh, a lab. I can use the unloaded handgun as a club. Yeah. Oh, he says, so what? You can use a sitter also as a club. Uh, you can use your cell phone as a club too, but it's not a weapon. It's not, it's not defined as a weapon. Yeah, but it's been defined with MMA fighters. They're, <laughs> this is a weapon. Should they cut their hands off? No, it's exactly. So oh, they're you're not saying, one second. You're saying there is one, there is one Russian guy Jewish. Again, so is this object, we'll talk about that soon, built primarily for destruction? That's the issue. A gun is built, it has one purpose, to kill human beings. No. Sometimes no, in good situations, sometimes bad. Target practice. That's only in Texas. No that's only in Texas. Army weapons are built to kill no, human beings. No, no, I'm saying even as a hobby, they're built to kill animals. They're built to destroy life. Whether it's animal life, human life, that's what guns are for. Okay? To destroy life. Something, the, the goal of destroying life many times could be a good purpose. It's your enemy, terrorist, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, whatever the case is. But it's still made to destroy human life. Which we're saying is that the economy, listen here, listen. Yes, the question. I'm answering your question. So a lot of guns are for recreation. Okay, I don't know what percent. But what recreation doing? Well, what do they do in the recreation? Shoot they kill squirrels. Shoot pigeons. They kill exactly. Uh, like so that's also destruction of life. 
Animal no. life is also life. Clay Shooting pigeons. pigeons. No one just uses it to shoot clay pigeons. Okay. No one just uses it to shoot clay pigeons. Very rarely. I think you can make a distinction between what its primary purpose is for. Um, I can use a knife to cut a rope, to cut a sheet, to cut a paper, also to stab somebody. But I don't know of another use of a gun other than to uh, eject a, pro a, a projectile at a high rate of speed. Now whether it's for target practice or pigeons or something else, okay, but I don't see an analogy that is similar to using a knife to cutting a rope versus a knife to stab somebody. Because I could cut a rope to build something. Meaning, I could, listen, I could use everything is a potential weapon. Everything is a potential weapon, as you're saying. But guns are, their primary use, that's what they're built for, is to destroy. Now, there are some people who shoot pigeons. Very nice. It doesn't mean Maybe that that's, used for other that's not their primary use. The primary use they're not made for is to shoot clay pigeons. You might do that. But, uh, okay, um... So now, so the, his point is, once you remove the bullets or the cartridge, it now is not defined anymore as a weapon because it can't do its its primary job. You could still a pistol whip someone, and it doesn't that doesn't you can do that with your cell phone too. Okay, so that's that's uh, option number three. He says that's if you can't do B, and B he says what you said before. If you cannot remove the bullets, let's say it's first of all IDF protocol might not allow you to remove it. Whatever the case is. Keep your pistol covered either in its holster, as we're saying, and you, a rifle, he says, you can cover with a jacket or a talus. Use a talus, put it over the rifle, oh, and I cover. I have no idea of a talus. I okay. can't think of a situation where you can't remove bullets, though. No, no, I'm saying, let's say the IDF doesn't let, let's say you're a soldier, and they tell you you have to keep the cartridge inside the gun. Well, it's easy. In that oh, okay, case. But that, you that, can always remove yeah, the protocol. person next to you. <laughs> yeah, you can always remove the bullets, I agree. Okay, so that, but in Israel, they might have different rules. Let's say you're, you work for a security company, they say you can't remove the cartridge, huh? Okay, as we say in Yiddish, Akasha for Maisa. You can't ask a question on a story. It's a story, you know, a question on a story. Okay, this uh, some guy, they didn't let him, didn't let him remove the bullets. Okay, so now, so again, so this is, so these are the basic, again, the protocols when you're in a synagogue with a weapon where it's not, where there's no danger to life. If there's an immediate danger to life, of course, again, you carry the gun and you, this is all irrelevant, as we said many times. That's why I put, again, in bold letters to make sure it's very clear. Safety always comes first. These rules should never place anyone's life in danger. In other words, be smart and safe. So, of course, if there's a real threat, you need to carry that gun in the synagogue and again, you need to be trained properly, etc. Okay, so that's that's so that me, aspect. What? Let me ask another question. Please. The individual in Israel across the Green Line who are vic not victims, but who are um, always under threat. Always yes. under threat by terrorists. They're allowed to carry. I'm guessing a lot to carry the gun. Hundred percent. If you live in a place that's dangerous, you don't have to go to the West Bank. If you live in Founders Southwest, you're probably allowed to carry. Also, I don't want to offend anyone who doesn't find yourself West here. Depending where you live. I mean, if you live in a dangerous place, you, know, you have to leave your home, Chicago, whatever, wherever it may be. Okay. okay. So, okay. so uh, yes, of course. Again, if there's a danger to life, none of this is really relevant. Okay. Um, now, the, but the real question becomes: We need to define danger from a legal and halachic perspective. What's called dangerous? This is where we spoke about yesterday. You were, you were there, and he's going to help us a little. Oh, you had something smart to say yesterday. We'll get there in a second. Meaning, how do you define danger? Because if you if you go with statistics, there's very 
low chance, even unfortunately with the changing situation um, in America today, um, where clearly uh, we ne you know, 20 years ago, and five years ago, there was never an attack in the shul in the United States. In the last year, we've had at least two or probably three, uh, two actual attacks, other attempted attacks. There was a case in Chicago of a, of a shul that was uh, firebombed, they attempted firebombing. Um, so there, so clearly we're under this, the numbers are increasing. But have they reached the threshold where you can say going to shul is dangerous? That's the question. How do we define danger? Because we're saying you're only, allow, only allowed to override the rules. And, and the other main question is going to be Shabbat, of course, where a gun, firing a gun, or even carrying a gun might be a problem, halakhically, because of Shabbat, again. So now, but of course, if there's danger to life, you can do it. But how do you define danger to life? Like we're saying, if you look at statistics, there's a lot bigger chance of being killed um, by a tree falling on your head than being killed in a shul on Shabbat. Okay? Although the media might like us to think differently. Unfortunately, things are moving quickly in, in this country. So where do you define, which point do we define the threshold, what's considered dangerous? Understand the question? Anyone have anything to add? Yes? Rabbi, do you know, I used to sit on the board of uh, Orami, and did you know that the reason, you know, Homeland Security pays for half of those fences, or a bit large portion of them, are yes. the synagogues. It's true, but and it doesn't you mean... Know, when we paid for that fence, it was like a lot of money. Like, okay, what? So, what's, like, so what's the question? Like, Why is that relevant? Well, I mean... So just because know, Homeland Security is giving a grant doesn't mean that you're in danger. Uh, again, statistically well, speaking, I mean, your chances of being killed in shul are probably equal no, to no, being no. struck by lightning. My understanding no. was that they could... Well, struck by lightning. No, listen, my understanding was yeah. the, the reason yeah. they pay for it... My understanding yeah. was the reason they pay for it is that they consider it a terrorist site. They yes, listen. The Jewish community said 100%. Exactly. But that doesn't mean, again, how do you define danger? Going imminent danger is right. The is there, how do we define danger? That's the question. Just because um, Homeland Security says we're going to give grants, you know, because they were pressured by by some Jewish rabbis to give grants to shuls, doesn't necessarily mean. I think it's okay. statistics that they looked at. No, I'm saying, listen, we're I, 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 so again. What are those statistics? What's the threshold statistics that define danger? No, I'm saying it's not a question of what you remember. It's a question of what does the halacha say? Where, what's the halachic threshold of defining danger where someone would be allowed to violate Shabbat? How far do we take it? So you agree it's a very small chance of being killed in the shul. So does that mean now we can do everything? We're gonna, everyone should have a gun, everyone should have walkie-talkies. How does that work? So that's what I want to address. So the first thing to understand is usually, again, as we said, and that's if you're looking here with, on the bottom of the page, defining danger. Should we treat this as pikuach nefesh, saving a life? What are the criteria of defining pikuach nefesh, which means saving a life? Okay? Well, the other, the other people said, statistics might be very small. Good joke. You don't want to be one of those statistics. <laughs> exactly. Okay? You know, it's, 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 it, 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 threat is something that could be a personal nature, too. And I feel threatened. Okay, so that's a valid point. We'll get it. Okay, but I'm saying, so that means, let's so say... I, I can say, because Mitchell, hey, don't worry about it. It's only a millionth of a percent, so it happens. Yeah, but the question is, how far do you take it? I feel threatened when I visit my mother-in-law, so therefore I can violate Shabbat when I'm at, you know, I can carry when I visit my mother-in-law because I feel it. Where do you draw the line? You can bring a gun with you. What? Bring a gun with you if you feel threatened. Right, so I'm saying, so who said your personal, you feel threatened, so now we allow you to violate Shabbos because you feel threatened? So we have to see, it's a good point. 
Well, well, let's get to let's define the situational threats change as time oh, develops. True. You know, if, if we look at let's say what happened with the uh, in, in Pittsburgh, if you looked at what happened in California, as opposed to what happened five years ago, the whole question of yes, threats. Yes, hundred percent. So it's growing, but has it re reached the threshold where now it's significant enough of a threat where it will allow you to violate Shabbat because of that threat? <coughs> question. Is it enough sufficient not. danger to, to to human life where we're going to allow you to violate Shabbat? At, is that to reach that threshold? You know what, it's changing, 100%. You know I, I say, agree. I say, what would God want you to do? He wants you to feel secure and go to shul. So maybe don't go to shul. Maybe he's diving at home. You could pray your prayers are answered at home too. It's not going to help you if your guns at home when you go to shul. No, no. What I'm saying is maybe you should pray at home. You should tell people, don't come to shul. Mm. Pray at home. Mm. Do we do that? Well, that's it's the question. It's your no, but we don't tell people. Most shuls tell you come to shul. Oh, well, Okay, so, okay. so yeah. let's see. So it's a, they're yeah. all valid points. Oh, what was your point? Relevant yet? Because your duty. Not a good point. Well, your duty. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Contrary to Halachic, what we discussed yesterday was how do they define uh, a significant oh. danger enough to. to let, let me first say, talk about them. Okay. okay, so we'll get through. So, so the point is like this. Normally, statistically, Halacha usually in general goes with statistics. That means it's a verse in the Torah. It says, Achri Rabbi Mahatos. You go with the majority. So the, the context there, of course, is a, is a court case, judges. We apply that to everything. That means we always, Halacha is based many times on statistics. Okay, but um, it says very clearly, when it comes to saving a life, statistics are irrelevant. That means, it says, the Talmud says very clearly, and the Halacha's Jewish law says, it says a 1% chance you can save someone's life, you violate Shabbat, you violate Yom Kippur, whatever the case may be. The case the Talmud's discussing is, is the building collapsed on Shabbat, and it says there's almost certain that there's no one in this building. We know the building was an abandoned building. There's no one, there's, the chance of someone being, of being in that building was very low. Secondly, um, if we look at the building, it was a, it was a you know, a, Earthquake, it was a pancake, it was a parking lot, and just there's no one left at the bottom. You know, everything was smashed. So, even if there was someone in there, the chances of a person surviving it are almost nil. Stull says that, even though there's a 0.001% chance of survival, you need to go in and violate Shabbat and, and check if there's any survivors. Okay? Because when it comes to saving a life, we don't look at numbers. Numbers are irrelevant. Even if there's a 0.001% chance you can save someone's life, you have to violate Shabbat, whatever it is. Yom Kippur, whatever uh, law may be, as we said, needs to be violated, even if the statistics show that there's really no chance of survival. Okay, so that's what it would seem. That's the basic principle. But again, how far do we take that? So, for example, um, how far do we take, let's say, Shabbat? Let's take Shabbat as an example. So, for example, I work in MD Anderson. I'm, I'm, I do cancer research. So, do we say, listen, I might discover the cure, cure to cancer, so therefore I can violate Shabbat in my research, because maybe today will be the day I'll discover the cure to cancer. That's ludicrous. No one, no one says that. No one says I can go into work on Shabbat, do cancer research, and violate Shabbat with my cancer, whatever the case is, because maybe today is going to be the day I'm going to discover the cure. Right? So you know, we understand that there's certain cases that are so beyond, um, what was the word you used yesterday? Remote. They're so remote of, of danger to life or saving a life that you're going to say that's not enough of a reason that hasn't reached the threshold of violating Shabbat. 
Okay, so you understand the case of the cancer issues? Do we agree on that case at least? Or not? You, you don't see much, you see have a problem with the cause. No, I do see it. Okay. The proximate cause is too attenuated. I feel the, the need to violate uh, a Yom Tov, a festival, or Shabbat because, uh, Saturday morning because I want to go do a Tikkun Olam and serve. Yeah, but that's not, we're not talking about nice. what Jews say. We're talking about what the law is. But you say a lot of things that are wrong. I'm saying Jews say there's a lot of Jews. Jews say a lot of things that are wrong, but that's not relevant to this class. We're not, we're not going. That's a, <laughs> but it's, it's related to the, the cancer doctor that wants to make that breakthrough on a second. No, but he's saying what, what the cancer doctor is saying, or he or she is saying, is I, it's, I'm saving a life. I need to do this on Shabbat. It's, a, it's obligatory. In other words, again, saving life, by the way, is not optional. When it comes to Shabbat, a person can't like say, that, uh, a person can't say that I'm not going to save. I, I'm going to keep Shabbat. As a matter of fact, it's obligatory to violate Shabbat in those cases, or Yom Kippur, whatever the case. Yes. Yet, I, I was just going to say, you know, it, it's proximate cause in in U.S. law. Right, which I mean, if there's if, if the direct causation is too attenuated, it's no longer proximate cause. So, you know, what what might be and and speculative. Uh, so you're saying it's the same. This is. Would be contained. This would be relevant. <coughs> to proximate cause question. Yeah. I think so. and, okay. And so the point you made yesterday is, you know, does he does he work and, until he passes out at every single night, or, or does? Yeah, so we'll get to that in a second. Okay. So so I, I found a number of things where they're trying to define this threshold when it comes to Shabbat. So I'll just read them quickly because <coughs> I don't want, I want to get to the next part, which is so um, the. Right, let's that. Okay, let's turn the page. Let's turn to the next page, page three. So it says, um, in D, let's start from D. It says, on top of page three, nevertheless, there are cases that are very unlikely. Do we still employ the principle that we don't follow statistical majorities, or is there some threshold where we ignore the remote possibilities? Okay, so the first thing is, um, um, okay, well that's a source source for this concept that there is remote cases where we where we don't say you violate Shabbat is Tos, Tosfos uh, was a commentary a medieval French commentator on the Talmud discusses a case where on the Chai he says why can't someone cook on Shabbat because potentially speaking there might be a, 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 a let's say you have a a seriously ill patient on Shabbat who needs protein the doctor says get him protein immediately there's no food so you, you could allowed to cook for him on Shabbat even though normally cooking is prohibited on Shabbat so says ask this uh, this early authority Tosfot he says so why can't I cook on Shabbat because potentially someone might uh, have a heart attack on Shabbat and they might need the protein so I need to cook in case that happens so he says obviously that's ridiculous this, it's so remote the chance of having someone a seriously ill patient who needs food the Shabbat, so therefore we're going to allow everyone to cook on Shabbat because of that reason, is too remote to allow you to violate Shabbat. That's what Tosa says. And all the later authorities discuss exactly how to narrow that down. So some, Rabbi Kivager, um, who's a, uh, if you see here in E, he, he says, he discusses what's, what's has he defined the remote possibility, he says, anything that's more than one in a thousand chance, which medically speaking is a very low or high threshold. So, so we discussed yesterday at the medical group the one in a thousand seems pretty remote, but we do procedures all the time that if one out of a thousand patients that we did a tonsillectomy on were to die, we'd say that's a totally unacceptable mortality rate. Mm -hmm. So one out of a thousand has to be relative. 
because you know if you're talking ruptured aneurysms uh, mortality of one out of a thousand is exceedingly low very high but if you're talking about tonsillectomies one out of a thousand is exceedingly high so it, it's the one out of a thousand is not a great number to pick yes. at least from the medical medical perspective <coughs> right. okay so, so let's let's see some other views so he says in number he says this is a very important one number two here on the sheet um, uh, it says like this, he writes, there has to be the concept, the halachic principle, called chola lefanenu. That means it has to be a present danger right now. So for example, um, the, 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 the classical case we discuss is, um, we discussed this here in the past, in a different class, autopsies generally are prohibited, mutilating a body is prohibited in Jewish law. Why? Because you, you, the Torah says you have to bury the body, we don't mutilate the body. Of course, now if there's a danger to life, you're allowed to mutilate the body. So what does that mean, a danger to life? That means, let's say, there's a murder. So we need to find, we need to, there's a dangerous, so there's a murderer on the loose. We need to do an autopsy to figure out how he killed him, etc., to find the guy, or DNA, whatever. Cases will allow autopsy in that case. Or another example given where we allow autopsy is, um, halachically speaking, we allow you to mutilate the body, which is a biblical prohibition, is if there are other people in the family that have the same illness and we need to ascertain what the illness is to save the other people's lives. So, so so what about um, if I again I'm just I'm just a medical student or whatever I'm a researcher and I want to study this disease to maybe find a cure so I'm going to mutilate the body to do that so says the Nodibu and this other opinion here this Yaakov Edinger no that's that's not allowed even though technically I'm doing it to save a life because I'm doing my research so we don't know we don't allow you to mutilate a body why because it has to be a present danger right now there is an ill patient another member in the family was a murderer on the loose who's dangerous and that's what allows me to violate the Torah law to, s to save that present danger but if there's just in the future yes we might find the cure to Parkinson's if I mutilate his brain that's not sufficient to allow you to do it so that's the kind of fanach that means it has to be in front of you there has to be a present danger if it's just a, a remote case uh, maybe down the line you know, I might be able to uh, get some information from this autopsy we won't allow. So it's the same thing, he says, in all cases of Pikur Nefesh. It has to be a present danger. Now, again, that would apply to guns. If we say there's currently in, in the United States, Mr. Schlossberg is saying there is a present danger um, where there's, a, there's in the shul, so then that would be okay. We'll be allowed to violate Shabbat and carry the gun into the shul and violate all these laws. So that's what it would depend on. And that to be a present danger, again, it has to be defined either by Homeland Security, whoever it is, is defining that danger. Um, an another litmus test, uh, Rabbi Chazanush says, in number four here on the page, he says, he says, what would you do during the week in that situation? Um, and there's two opinions about this, similar. He says, if, we, if it's something that warrants that the community is going to have to do something about it, we're gonna, during the week we'd gather for prayer or fast, as they did in those days, when there was uh, something terrible happening in the community. Because that's the definition here, too. Um, if it's that, on that level of uh, danger, you do that, then you'd laugh about it. Shabbat. And Ramosh Weinstein says, similar to what Alan said, Alan, this is your, your man. He says what you said in number five. He says that um, danger to life, in a certain sense, might be subjective. Because people have different anxieties. So if I feel my life is threatened, he says, so for you, you can violate Shabbat. 
if you have this personal anxiety, um, he explains here, number five, he says, he says, he suggests, it depends on the person. Some people are very nervous, and they may not violate Shabbat in certain situations. Others, uh, they may, and they may violate Shabbat. Someone has a very high anxiety level. So for them, they can't come to shul, they feel like their life is threatened, unless they're carrying, they're only comfortable if they're carrying a weapon. So he says, for them, they would be allowed to violate Shabbat. So he says, for others, standard, subject, yes, yeah. exactly, So I'm saying, like Alan mentioned. Others who are more chilled, they're, you know, they're not, they're comfortable, they don't feel like they're, they're so anxious in shul. So uh, many people are anxious for other reasons in shul, the rabbi's sermon or whatever the case may be. But uh, the, uh, the, so he says it depends, so it's sub subjective. So that's really what Alan was saying, Alan, I think you start, have to start growing facial hair and uh, maybe become a rabbi. Okay, so that's, the, and the last but not least um, is uh, Rabbi Orbach. He says like this, he defines a remote threat. He says, you have to look at what's the litmus test to see if this is a true threat. He says, what would you do during, this, during the week? If during the week you would do what you, what you would feel like um, this is a dangerous situation, I would have to call the police or carry a weapon because you're walking through this neighborhood. Says that, so then nothing changes on Shabbat. Shabbat is no different than any other day of the week when it comes to saving a life. We have to view Shabbat as Sunday. So therefore, if on Tuesday, this is what you do because your life, you feel threatened, so then he says that's the litmus test and you could do that on Shabbat. What's wrong though? Yeah, why? Because I, th I believe that Jews are a target and they congregate on Shabbat, so they're a bigger target on Shabbat. So if I was going to go to Bethany Stern on a Tuesday, Hey, there's no reason to bring a gun. With exactly, that's exactly what he's saying. But if you'd have that same gathering on a Tuesday, no, would you bring a gun? No, no. If that same large gathering on Tuesday would happen, correct? Okay, would you bring a gun? So he says, if you could bring, if you're going to bring yeah. a gun on Tuesday, then you bring, a, then you're allowed to bring a gun on Shabbat. That's his point. That's what he's defining as. Okay. Um, he, one, he discussed an example, which is, let's say, he, he, the question there was for an IDF, can they change the flat tire? A Jeep gets a flat tire in the West Bank. Can they change the flat tire on Shabbat? Or should they just well, leave the Jeep? Driving. What's the difference? No, <laughs> no, he's saying is, should they just take another Jeep and get another Jeep to come pick them up? Or can they change the flat tire? Shabbat uh -huh. If he's driving on Shabbat, he's already broke Shabbat. Now no, he stopped driving. The Jeep cut a flat. So what do I? Fixing a flat. One second. Fixing a flat on Shabbat is a problem. Is, is a biblical yeah. violation. Fixing. So now, so he says is. So he, he what he explains is if during the week, the protocol would be it's dangerous. You have to fix this flat. Take care of it. So he says you'll have to do it also on Shabbat. That's his point. Okay. No, it's meaning, again, He's whatever you do during the week. Fixes it, that Shabbat is no yeah, but each time you press the pedal, it's a different violation. It's an, yeah, oh, a so violation. So some violations yeah. are okay, but not all of them? No, see, just because you're doing one violation, so it doesn't mean I can commit adultery now. What does one have to do with the other? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's tort plus. No right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so, so just to summarize this, I want to get to a different uh, issue. Summaries there. There may be nuanced differences in the various formulations. They all seem to agree in the bottom of the page uh, to agree that if there's no imminent threat and people wouldn't cancel important events during the week because of the situation, pikuach nefesh cannot be employed. So meaning if there's no, as we're saying, that has to be an imminent threat. Okay, so let's say in the gun case, one can argue again, and I don't know the answer to this, and the question would be, let's say the specific threat to the shul. Please say, we know a shul in Houston is going to be targeted the Shabbos. We have intelligence. We don't know which one it is. So that's an imminent threat. There's no question, of course, you'd be allowed to put it. If there's just, like we're saying, two shuls in the United States, I'm not sure. How, is that called an imminent threat? I don't know. It's a good question. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure of the answer. So he goes on to say, 
in the summary here, if a threat or suspicious person package appears, there will be cause for cancellation, interruption of an event, even on a weekday, then on Shabbat, it's considered suffered because nefesh, and then you should violate Shabbat. Okay, so you need to have an imminent threat, and um, you, the litmus test would be, what would you do during the week, this threat? So on to the next page. Now uh, the, I have a problem yes. with that. Yes. Let's just, just use the Pittsburgh example. There was no imminent threat moments before it happened. Yeah. Exactly. So but that's it had, the point. The threat was there. No. It no. wasn't there. There was no threat. It, wasn't it happened. No. The action happened like saying... They didn't have notice of an imminent threat, but the threat was saying, there nonetheless. No. Well, the risk no. was there, no. not the threat. No, no, no the, even the risk wasn't. The at that point, the there's no risk because it never happened before in the United States. The moment before... You know, when you go on a plane... His weapon, one second. Wait, there's me, no risk. When you go on a plane, right, <laughs> so there's no imminent risk. Right, the assumption is there's no risk. But just because the plane crashed, that doesn't mean there was an imminent risk before. Well, we're right? not talking about plane crash. We're no, talking no. about a human no, I understand. who has uh, it's human life. So I'm saying well, is, no, what I'm saying is, it's the same. Intent. You're saying just because the act happened, that means there was a prior threat. No, yeah, doesn't exactly. mean that. If the plane crashes, doesn't mean there we're was a danger. We're not talking about a plane. We're talking about human behavior. It's called analogy. A plane, but no, no. Explain to you. It's plane crashing is not yeah. human behavior. Depends could be. On who caused yes. it and why. Could be. Whatever. Many plane crashes were human behavior. Intentional crash that's yes. still human behavior. Yes. So what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that just because something happened doesn't mean the threat exists. Prior to Pittsburgh, no one would have told you, no rabbi would have allowed you people to carry in show because there was no threat. Is well, my really point. there was a threat because um, if you look at the internet, he put out messages there that would indicate. Oh, okay. So if we again, if we know there's a threat, of course. But the question is, we have to know there's an imminent threat, right? It wasn't that we didn't know. Again, going back to situation, if we look at the level of technology, if we look at the environment that we live in, that is considered a threat. Okay. So again, I, I, I'm. What what's that when you say that? To be more specific. The texting that this person did prior. Yeah, but we weren't aware of it. That's my point. No one was aware. No one was aware of it. No one was. Besides one guy who saw the site, you know, ten minutes before. Until you get out on the internet, yes, there were people that were aware of it. Okay, so I don't know. Security was aware that this person was a threat. They were okay. I don't know. I don't know the specifics in that case. That's a that's a wide net. That's a wide net. I mean, extrapolate from the situation. So I I think you're right. Meaning if. Homeland Security picks up chatter on the internet, says there's going to be an attack, an imminent attack on a synagogue. So then, 100%, that's no question. We all need to care, we all need to make sure to prevent that from happening and violate any law that needs to be done. The question is, if that didn't happen, in a regular situation where there's no imminent threat, there's no chatter, they didn't pick up anything, so can, is that defined as a threshold of, of imminent danger? That's the question. <coughs> what about if I'm a second? Give him a chance. Give Paris someone else a chance. Right now. Yeah, so Europe might be very different. So 100%. don't we need to differentiate in Israel might be different. from the idea that I think most of the people in this room feel like the Jews generally are under a threat as opposed to something that we have knowledge of a specific urgency. If I sit here and think that I'm a target and I'm a always a target, then the whole conversation is ridiculous. Right. I'm going to carry a gun. So if the whole point of the halacha is for me to define and differentiate between being under threat in general as opposed to a specific threat that would then allow me to violate Shabbat by carrying a weapon. Isn't there a difference? I mean, and if you don't make that differentiation, then you're always under threat. Then right, so, what is, so what is, I'm not sure we, we're using well, vague terms here, general or imminent. Well, so I'm saying general, everyone's under general threat. You walk in. As a Jew, I think most of the people in this room feel threatened. 
Generally. Um, I don't know. I don't feel threatened. Uh, I just I flew through Turkey. I, I wore my keeper. I, I prayed in the uh, airport, uh, put on fill, and I, no one said a word. People what smiled I'm, at me. What I'm hearing is that I had a good time. Like yes. Jews are basically under threat in America. So again, throughout well, history, Jews have been. Yeah. So again, again, the question is, do you, does you, Mark? It's a good point, but the question is again that we're saying: does your, does your personal anxiety? Jews are very anxious people. We all have anxiety. Does your personal anxiety change the halach? No, no, that, to find that's, Allah, and that's, that's what question. I'm saying. Is right. that, so I that's think the Allah. fact that they, the expression here is generally everybody feels under threat is different than the halacha, which is saying there needs to be an urgent. I don't, I don't say, I say the word urgent, or, but or a, a, uh, yes, a, a real, all right. a certain level. It can't be totally remote. A certain no yes. level of, of knowledge. So, to, so to the extent that, that or, we want yeah. to look at it, or, or even statistics. Yes, yes, yes. That's that's imminent. So to the extent that I don't know, the it's a strong word. I don't know. It's a good. Point. I don't know. It's very. It's it's hard to define. You're right. So to the extent that halacha might want to to look at, and I'm not writing halacha, but to the extent they might want to look at a, a statistical uh, question or analysis yeah. of, of the threat. You know, I, I do FDA law, and the FDA requires for every product a risk analysis. And that risk analysis sets a pre-established threshold numerically of how much risk is acceptable. And then they take <coughs> the severity of, of the risk and multiply it, and, and that might be on a scale of one to six. You determine what the uh, severity of, of the risk is, and then how common or the probability of that risk occurring and you put that on a one to six scale and then you multiply the two and you get a number and, right, and so Allah reaches up. too complicated for Allah. Meaning that, again, statistics are but not relevant to saving lives. It, as we it's said. It's not relative but not relevant. But but the point is there are, are some reasonably decent ways to assess, to do a risk analysis beyond just say oh statistics. we'll arbitrarily right. pick one out of a thousand. Okay. Okay. I agree agreed. <coughs> we can always go from a scale of zero risk to 100% risk, and where do we fall in the middle there, and how do you figure that out? Right. right. So you need actuaries for that. Rabbis aren't actuaries. Besides uh, you personally carrying a gun, like yeah, well, not the personal. Again, I, yeah, I want to make it clear. Yes, I want to make it clear. There's a very good point that Patrice is bringing up. That that we're not necessarily discussing personal carry. The question is, the shul has two options. They can hire armed guards, or they can have people in the shul or train. So first of all, I want to make it clear, you need to speak each shul, of course, <coughs> your own protocol. Don't do anything without speaking to the board and the rabbi and everything else. Um, don't do anything on your own because you don't want okay corral. So, so it is a good point. Maybe they should have only hire armed guards, not use but that costs a lot of money. Oh, it's a budget. I like, I like the okay corral myself. Okay, but I want to, I want to, there's only have four minutes left, so I want to just, there's one other, two other very important, interesting points. The next part, which I'm not going to dwell on so much, is there is a prohibition on Shabbat called Muktzah, which means you're not allowed to move anything or carry anything, which has a, its sole primary use is a prohibited use. So the question again, if it's because of Nefesh, of course, you can move it. So for example, uh, um, let's say you want to move your hammer around. The hammer's primary use is to build, it's not nails, which is prohibited on Shabbat. Therefore, you're not allowed to even move the hammer, a pen. You're not allowed to write on Shabbat. 
um, therefore a pen's primary use is to write. So you're not allowed to move a pen on Shabbat. That's known as the law of Moktzah, which says on top there, forbidden to carry your utensil whose primary use is forbidden work. So the question is, what about a gun? In, again, in a non-life-threatening situation. Life-threatening, of course you could do it. But in a non-life-threatening situation, can I be carrying my gun on Shabbat? Um, okay, so so there's an interesting discussion. Some want to say that the main and I and looked up uh, this is actually the statistics. The main time of the, the primary use of a gun is not to shoot. It's used as a deterrent. What's the primary use? It's a very interesting question um, in the philosophy of of, of carrying concealed carry or non-concealed carry is what is the purpose? Is the purpose to defend yourself, to use it to shoot someone? Or is the purpose just, you're walking through a bad neighborhood, people see the bulge, they're going to pick the guy who doesn't have the gun. Okay, it's used as a deterrent. The same thing, it just says most armed guards outside the shul they're just there, most of them many times they don't even have a gun. Okay, but they're there just as a deterrent. They have the, like the JC has this old 1963 Kojap cop, cop car in the parking lot it's just as a deterrent. No one's there. It's, there's nothing. It serves no purpose. But that. So if you view the purpose, the primary purpose of a gun as a deterrent of carry as deterrent, so then it's not made for for prohibited use on Shabbat. Deterring uh, criminals on Shabbat or terrorists is a permitted use. So it's an interesting way to look at it. So I brought down here a number of opinions on that. I want to just. Uh, we only have two minutes left. It's a fascinating piece I found just to show you how nothing changes for thousands of years. Everything is in the Torah. Um, so the, the main debate today, as we know in our society, we're not taking sides, between the NRA and uh, the rest of the world, which is uh, um, the NRA's famous line, what they use in the, all their ads and the paraphernalia, says guns don't kill people, people do. Okay, so, the, so that's one of their things. It's not about the guns. Don't ban guns. Cars also kill, do we ban cars? Um, right, so no, we ban, the question is, we need to fix the people. Something wrong in society. It's the people that are killed. That's the NRA's argument. So fascinatingly enough, first of all, you see two places where, from at least from the Torah, not necessarily true. One is we're saying here, don't bring metal. Metal is bad, says the Talmud, because it's used for destruction. So we see that the the metal itself, the gun, the weapon itself takes on this bad trait. Even though it's the person killing, you can make an argument. Why can't I bring a gun? He was saying, don't bring a, a gun on the shoulder because it shortens life. It's the person who's shortening, it's the shooter who's shortening the life. It's not the gun, right? According to the NRA, it's the, it's the shooter. You can make that argument. So why, why? The person shouldn't come to the shoulder, not the metal. So, but we see somehow the metal when a human uses something for good or for bad, that item acquires the trait of, of that bad or good trait. Okay, that's just a side point, but there's a fascinating piece here on the back, the last sheet, which is, this is from Nachmanides in Genesis, in the, the end of Parashat the first beginning of creation, we see this argument taking place right away, the argument of the NRA and and um, and others. Okay, and I'm going to show you, it's a, it's a beautiful story. If you're familiar with the story, as we know, say I'll try to say it quickly, finish, to wrap it up. But the story of Cain and Abel, as we know, Cain killed Abel. The first murder in the world was Cain. Um, killed his brother Abel, he was jealous, whatever the story is. Um, they had, Cain's great-grandson was someone named after him, his name was Tubal-Cain. Um, at the end of the part, of the, again, of, Ge of Genesis, the first portion of the, of the book, it discusses there that uh, who invented what. And it says the grandsons of Adam, there were three grandchildren, great-grandchildren, I believe. One, uh, one invented um, all musical instruments, the beginning, it says he invented, he was the inventor of the concept of 
performing metal to musical instruments. Another one invented animal husbandry, the Torah says. And a third one, one of the third children, Tubal Kaim, invented, it says here, who sharpened all tools that cut copper and iron. And they explain he invented the concept of making, using iron for weapons. He invented the concept of using, of making weapons. Um, so what happened was, his wife was not happy about it. And most wives whose husbands have guns are not happy. Yeah, this we're talking about 6,000 years ago, 5,777 years ago. Okay, so the same, so what happens? I'm going to read you the Nachmanis explains the behind the scenes of what was going on there. It says, Lemach was a very wise man in all kinds of skilled craft. He taught his firstborn son, Jabel, the subject of animal husbandry. Uh, that's what we use in Texas, of, of uh, how to live on a ranch, how to make different animals in accordance with the nature of various animals. He taught his second son, Jubal, the art of music. And he taught the third son, Jubal Kayan, to sharpen and to make swords, spears, javelins, and all other s sorts of weapons. His wives were afraid he lest, lest he be punished. For he had brought swords and thus murder into the world. He was creating weapons. He was uh, Smith and Wesson. Okay, and he's creating his weapons. Terrible. Um, Philip Morris creating cigarettes. He, and here he was grasping the deed of his ancestor in his hand. He, as we know, his grandfather, his great-grandfather was the first murderer in the world. So his wife said, look, you're going to teach him this. Everyone's going to say, oh, he's a murderer. Just like his grandfather. He's making weapons. He's manufacturing weapons. He needs to be sued. In court, he's a murderer. He's the cause of all murder in the world. That's what the wife said. Then this Nachmanides writing this commentary. Nachmanides lived in the 1100s. He's writing this. Um, he says, uh, for he was the descendant of the first murderer, Cain, and he to create destruction to cause injury. So he answered them. What did Cain answer his wife? First, uh, it wasn't the first argument between man and wife, but um, one of them. He says, I have not killed anyone through wounds, nor a child through injuries as Cain did. So God will not punish me, but will safeguard me from being killed even more than he guarded Cain. He made mention of these injuries as wounds as if to say that even without swords and spears, a person can kill, as you said before. Some uh, people use their hands to kill. They can choke someone, they can punch someone. Through injuries and wounds, some people could use their cell phone, inflicted with his bare hands. In which case he inflicts an even worse death upon his victim than one brings about through the sword. A sword is an easy death. You decapitate the person, he's dead. Someone strangles someone, that's a much worse death. So, so do you chop off his hands? He says, and listen to these words in the bowl. Exactly taken out of an NRA handbook. He says, for it is not the sword that causes the murder, but the killer himself. And therefore there is no sin for one who makes swords. So this was his argument to his wife. Now, we don't know who's right in this argument. The Torah doesn't say who's right. But this was the, the, the argument between um, Tubal Cain and his wife. Won, huh? It doesn't say he won the argument. So we don't know who's right. But again, we see seven, uh, 5,779 years ago, the same argument that's taking place in our society today between the NRA and everyone else is right here in the Torah. There's nothing new under the sun. Shalom.